0: Hi, welcome to Lineage. I'm your host, Shani Jamila. On this show, I'm talking across generations with some of our most imaginative thinkers about how New York City impacts their work and how their work impacts the world. I'm thrilled to debut the very first episodes of this podcast on the birthday of two of my greatest influences, writers Toni Morrison and Audre Lorde. It's my hope that the stories that'll be shared on this platform do justice to the kind of truth-telling, justice-seeking, magic-making work that these women devoted their lives to. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live at the Dumbo House in Brooklyn, New York. My thanks to everyone there for a wonderful event. It was a pleasure to host a live interview there with choreographer and curator Rashida Bumbrey. She's the director of culture and art at the Open Society Foundation, a United States Artist Awardee, and the inaugural recipient of a residency at the Metropolitan Museum of Art for artists engaged in social practice work. We talk about her family history, her remarkable career working with institutions including the Studio Museum in Harlem, the Kitchen and Creative Time, and we honor the life of her teacher, poet and writer Kamal Brathwaite. Artist to artist, neighbor to neighbor, this is Lineage, welcome. Let's start by talking a little bit about your particular home. You're from Washington, D.C., but your mother actually is from New York. So your journey with New York began before you began.
1: Yes, so my mother um, was born and raised in Harlem. Her mother was from Charlottesville, Virginia, though, and her grandmother and her great-grandmother and her great-grandmother were from Charlottesville, Virginia. On her father's side, her family was from Jamaica and Barbados. So my mother is very much, I think, um, symbolic, really, of this idea of migration, um, and especially in the context of black people in New York City. You know, when we think about the idea of man-child in the promised land, like black people who left the South to come um, to the North, and also uh, black people who were coming from the Caribbean to the UK, to New York, uh, my, my mother's story is very much that, but my mother thinks of herself as a Harlemite and so that's a very strong kind of grounding for her and for all of us even though we didn't grow up here we grew up in DC my father would always say you can take the girl out of Harlem (laughs) but you can't take Harlem out of the girl so my mother would be in the street with us saying like y'all don't know how to play games like DC kids y'all don't have any games like she was always trying to get us to do still the bacon and she was embarrassed that I couldn't jump double dutch so, my mother was I very, like, great shame. Harlem, right? <laughs> Harlem landed in Washington, D.C. with her. And so, but my mother grew up, she was a child, um, the youngest of seven, on 110th and Lenox. And so, her landscape was really Central Park. And she talked a lot about Central Park and New York being um, sort of her oyster at that moment. And being the youngest, there was the assumption that she was supervised because, all of those other siblings were meant to be watching her, but she said that that meant she had a lot of freedom. <laughs> so she could like wander down to the Metropolitan Museum of Art where I'm actually doing a residency this year that actually is about the idea of home and context. And so my project will be grounded in bed where I live now. And so, so anyway, the story of my mother is really about this idea of Harlem, but Harlem being sort of a point of entry for the whole city. Mm-hmm. But she's... My mother still didn't want to come to Brooklyn. She was like, why are you moving to Brooklyn? Who lives in Brooklyn? I was like, mommy, (laughs) you haven't lived here for 40 years. Word.
0: And to be clear, Brooklyn is better than Harlem, right?
1: (laughs) That's that's my battle with my husband, actually. When I met him, I lived in Harlem. It was a long-distance relationship. He was in Brooklyn.
0: (laughs) Yeah, if I'm going to Harlem, I need a passport. (laughs) Let's pull it together. So tell, tell me about your New York because when you first moved here, it's been 17 and a half years, right? So you've been in, since you've been in the city and I'm sure you've seen, there's so many New Yorks always happening at the same time. Um, but I'm curious as you look back over the expanse of time since you've been here, how would you describe your New York?
1: Well, I think one thing that's interesting for me um, and my mother has spoken about this for me is that I go places and I find like, you know, my, cause I'm from DC, I find my chocolate city wherever I go. So even though I went to Oberlin college and that's like not historically black college, you can speak to that. Um, I lived in African heritage house. I was in dance diaspora. Um, I was an African-American studies major. So I feel like I just gravitate towards the center of blackness wherever I can find that. So when I moved to New York, I lived in Harlem. I worked at the studio museum in Harlem. Um, and so this was, well, I moved to New York in 1999 for like a semester. And then I came back, I went to London for like six months and then I came back here. Um, and so I got here, I guess, a year before 9-11. So I think I can definitely mark the difference between pre-9-11 New York and then post. Um, but what I remember feeling, uh, was really just sort of a richness of people that were um, building on the sort of multicultural moment of the 90s. Um, And so it's interesting because I started working at the Studio Museum in 19, I'm sorry, in 2001 on the Freestyle exhibition. So that exhibition went on to be really important just in terms of those 28 black artists um, who are all quite famous now. Um, But really that idea of post-black was something that was a part of the discussion. Um, It was said in a lot of jest for people who have read that essay that Thelma and Glenn Ligon wrote, but it was about the idea that all of these artists have done um, very identity focused work over many years. And so therefore the next generation of black artists had a certain freedom that was afforded to them by that lineage. Um, It was taken out of context, uh, which I think made sense because the idea of post-black sounds very silly and it sounds incredibly silly right now, right? I think it's always sounded silly if you're taking it out of a context of talking about a specific group of artists, right?
0: Well, the thing is, it's a complicated conversation, right? So I remember um, when that particular book came out, and and I remember when that exhibition came out, and I'd spent some years um, working, I also spent some years living in Washington, D.C., Um, and for four of them, I led a program called the Prison to College Pipeline, and so what I did was I had a group of um, students from the University of Maryland College Park who I... um, Uh, trained as mentors and we would tutor and mentor young men um, in a juvenile detention center locally. Um, So we were using arts activism, we were using political education. But one of the things that um, sticks with me to this day in a very um, painful way and something that I had to make sure that I didn't become jaded to is the fact that every week when I went into um, this facility, it was nothing but black and brown boys in our nation's capital for four years, every week, separate and unequal treatment for black and brown boys. So having a conversation about what does it mean to be in a post-black era in the midst of a time where you also have such um, stringent racial disparities demonstrated in such a profound way, I think is something that we all need to be wrestling with. And of course, that was at a particular moment before this current administration where race is very pronounced again.
1: Yeah, Um, and I mean, one thing I'll say is that um, out of that moment of artists, I feel like there has been a real um, movement where I think that people don't even try to categorize like the kind of production that black artists are making. I think that that is actually the kind of expansion that um, that moment was meant to provoke. But I feel like right now, um, black artists can make work about whatever they wanna make. Work about, and I think that black artists making work about blackness um, is as celebrated as black artists who are making work about abstraction, which you know may not read um, to be completely you know not that may not read to be about identity in the first glance. But I feel like we're way beyond that, and so I think that that's actually a a marker to acknowledge um, that the last 15 years or so um, have been. Um, really important in terms of, especially in the contemporary art world for black artists to be able to kind of um, be subaltern, be, you know, focused on blackness or identity, be focused on abstraction, be focused on um, many things. But I do feel like one of the things that I've talked about and especially working at the Open Society Foundations where Lauren works with me and just sort of seeing the way that so many artists around the world who are in governments that have been fascist for many years or to sort of can give us some signals about where we're going. I think the silver lining about this moment is that we understand our responsibility. Even artists who are focused on a market, for example, still understand their responsibility politically. I think that that is a shift that we're seeing right now um, that I think is pretty significant um, and that I hope will um, move us forward because i do believe that artists are the visionaries i do believe that artists are um, you know ho- help, helping to imagine um, the world that we want to live in right hoping to imagine the world where there are no borders where there are no walls where there are no prisons mm-hmm. um, and so i do feel like um, i'm thankful to one be a, a part of a community of artists um, that i've worked with as a curator but then also as or choreographer collaborating with artists who who push us, right, who make us uncomfortable. And so I hope that um, this moment will also um, create some kind of leverage for the next generation that I feel like I've had a sinking kind of feeling that we have failed them. Um, But I feel like we have, we can't, that can't be the narrative, right, so that we have to shift our um, focus to actually create a space and imagine a space where they can live. And if we don't, they're already picking up that baton. So, mm-hmm.
0: I mean, as I think back to that next generation, you know, we, we talked a good bit in private conversations about the idea that the artistic population in New York is kind of always in, in flux, right? Like people move in, people move out. There's these waves. And if you stay here long enough, then you're riding all of these different waves of creative energy in the city. But one of the things I think draws us here is when you come, the people that you get to meet. Even as I look around this room right now and I'm seeing the people that are here, it's an extraordinary group of people just in this particular moment, right? And thinking about that as a larger exploration once you get here. So when I first got here, it's been maybe seven and a half years since I've been in New York. Oh, coming up on eight years um, since I've been in New York. And one of the first experiences I had was going to um, see Bleed, curated by um, Jason and uh, Alicia Hall Moran. Um, at the Whitney, and that was my first time actually seeing your work in the context of that really extraordinary performance series. And you told me that you've done this only one time in the South, in Virginia, but that otherwise it's been in Ohio and been New York. So how has the city um, impacted your performance of this particular very Southern practice?
1: Um, So the first... I'm trying to think about the first time that I performed the Ring Shout in New York, and I think it was actually at the Studio Museum. Um, Lowry Stokes Sims curated this exhibition called Challenge of the Modern African American Artists, 1923 to 1943, and it was about this idea of modernism um, and the fact that in, you know, art history talks about modernism in terms of white artists, um, but in reality, and this is a narrative that repeats itself, black artists were sort of at the forefront of making work about the idea of modernism and in the moment of modernism. And so she made an exhibition that had sections um, of artists who were working during that time and one was about spirituality. Um, And so Sandra Jackson-Dumont, who's actually at the Met, um, was a director of education at the Studio Museum and she invited me to do a performance in response to the exhibition. And we did um, sort of a brief, response to each section and so the spirituality section had a ring shout and I think before that I had done it um, for Michelle Wallace taught a Zora Neale Hurston course at um CUNY at City University um and we did one in response to Zora Neale Hurston um, when she did um Mules and Men um and sort of responding to you know really this idea of um the Kumana tradition in Jamaica and so um that was really looking at um you know, Zora Herson is an anthropologist who I take as a great inspiration in my work in this idea of being a participant observer. Thinking about like, how am I having both the curatorial lens and my own lens as a performer and this idea of learning through call and response. So we did the performance there in her class and that was actually one of the most, um, I think that was the first time that we all had a heightened experience in a public performance. I think because it was such an intimate space Uh, Many people started to catch the spirit. Many people, um, you know, had to, we had to sort of take a break. But it was a very safe environment. It was a very small environment. And so doing it in New York, I think, has been really interesting because I think, once again, New York is a landing space for many people from the South. It's a landing space for many people from the Caribbean. But it also, I mean, living in Harlem, there's like two or three churches on every block, right? It's also a very spiritual kind of context. And so I think for many kinds of practices, whether it's a Shango Baptist kind of practice from Trinidad and Tobago, whether it's Pentecostal churches, you see the the church nurses dressed in all white. And so people speak that language. And I think the thing about the ring shout is, um, even if we don't know we speak the language when we see it and we hear it, it's very familiar. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we've done with the work, and we really do focus on uplifting the practice of the McIntosh County Shouters. And they actually have been doing this uninterrupted from generation to generation. So a lot of the songs that we use in the Ring Shout were recorded by Bernice Reagan Johnson, who's Toshi Reagan's mother. Um, and she did a, a series for the Smithsonian Folkways where she actually recorded the McIntosh County Shouters singing all of these songs in a group called the Seniorites singing all of these songs. And so this is how we had access to the music, Um, but then when we look at the way that they perform it, um, for me, I started to hear a lot of resonance. So I started to hear Dr. Dre sampling Parliament when he did Swing Down, Sweet Chariots Up, and Let Me Ride. So we sing that, and then we blend it into the ring shout. So I've thought also about the tradition of DJing and mixing Um, And then growing up in D.C., I think about the tradition of go-go, right, where Chuck Brown decided the way we're going to keep people dancing is that we're going to actually not stop the music, right? So we're going to keep the music going. So in the ring shout, we don't stop in between songs. The songs layer on top of each other, as you heard Run, Mary, Run layering with um, Adam and Eve.
0: To illustrate this point, let's take a moment and listen to a snippet of Rashida performing with the Dance Diaspora Collective. Audio provided courtesy of Malik Bellamy. This music was also shared with the audience at our live event.
1: really for the um the energy to keep moving keep moving and I'm I I play the role of a conductor where I can sing um in a certain tenor I can sing in a certain tempo to actually direct the dancers and one of the things that we talk about is really how we ask um all of the singers to be um conductors right to be transmitters of energy to actually move the the dancers to a spiritual heightened kind of place this idea of full out Um, and so I think even though I'm not trained as a vocalist my approach really comes from my own cultural vernacular experience of the go-go and then also of you know growing up in the hip-hop era where and we also sample most deaf we sing the part where he says my grandmother was raised on a reservation, my grandmother was on a plantation, so she sang songs for liberation, all of this part. So it's really sampling that one, so we can understand that our music is from a lineage, right? That we're part of a continuum, but also because we wanna speak the language of the people that are experiencing the performance. It's beautiful.
0: So you're talking about pulling not just from traditions, but also from locales. So as I'm hearing you talk, I'm thinking maybe Maybe home for you, even though you were raised in DC and even though you're living in New York, maybe home for you is a multi-local experience. Would you, is that a fair thing to say? How do you think about the idea of home? Well,
1: I think about what I was saying when I was quoting Kamal Brathwaite, this idea of um, the idea of freedom is really about, maybe I didn't say this, but he says that um, the enslaved person knows that they are free when they have claimed their own archive, right? So I think about the archive of the black diaspora as home, right? And I feel like I find that in different, different places, right? So I find, um, I always talk about like finding Harlem and Brooklyn. The reason I love Harlem is because now I live um, in Bedside, which those are many homes owned by people who came from the South in the 50s. Um, so being able, I recognize that and that feels like home to me um but it's brooklyn right and i never lived in the south i live i mean dc is above the mason dixon line technically um but it's you. very southern right <laughs> <Yeah. clears throat> so um yeah so i definitely do find home in other places and actually um just last year in december i got to see takala um and yasra in johannesburg and we have been trying to get together in brooklyn right but we saw each other in Johannesburg so I feel like home for black people is always a moving I don't want to say a moving target I think it's a moving space it's where you are it's where your people are um, and so I think that in many ways this work is about that this work is about how do we find ourselves in a foreign land how do we find ourselves in a strange land how do we find home um, in a different place and in, in Weeksville specifically um, the idea of a sanctuary, right, in a space that was unsafe for black people.
0: Say more about the history of Weeksville for people who aren't familiar with
1: okay. um, So Weeksville, so I came to know Weeksville through Elisa Blount-Moorhead, um, who used to be the programming director there and um, who invited me to do this ring shout there. Um, and it was really embarrassing to me as someone who lived like a bus ride away to not know about Weeksville, but Weeksville was a free, intentional community started in 1838 um, by a group of black investors who decided um, that in order well who were aware of the fact that in order for black people to vote they had to own 250 dollars worth of land and so as an act of self-determination and solidarity they bought um, this huge plot of land and resold it to black families um, so they could have the vote but also so that they could have Uh, this intentional free black community which was a sanctuary uh, especially when slavery was still happening right in New Jersey Um, you know it was 11 years after the abolition of slavery in um, New York City but it was also as you can imagine a time of great racial terror and I was walking down the street yesterday actually thinking about this because uh, it was getting dark and I noticed that I was like the only black woman on the street and I started to feel scared, but I, it made me sort of go back to this moment. Like, what if this, I wonder what the street would have been like in the 1830s. How would I feel? Um, and so this was a time when, um, you know, while emancipation happened on July 4th, they did not celebrate it on July 4th because of the fear of, um, racial violence, but they celebrated emancipation day on July 5th. And this performance was actually part of Emancipation Day celebration that Elisa curated. Beautiful.
0: I want to talk more about the work that you have coming up. So you'd alluded to the work that you're doing with the Metropolitan uh, Museum of the Met. Um, Can you share with us a little bit more about what that project will be and how you'll be engaging community residents?
1: There's an organization called the Bedside Brownstoners. Started 41 years ago, and it's a group of... um, folks who have owned their homes in best Side since that time, and really have been focused on making sure black people can continue to own their homes, um, in our neighborhood. And so, um, they invited me to a meeting because someone had posted about the residency on the, on the Facebook page. And I thought it was going to be like a lot of people and it was like six people sitting in a circle. Um, and they were like, listen, this is what we do. How can we work with you? Um, and so what I'm hoping to do is to host um, a series of small gatherings in the homes of people who are members of this, um, I mean, really homes of people who live in our neighborhood, um, and some of them will be um, a part of the Bedside Brownstoners. Um, and really what is amazing to me about them is when they they get, um, so the, the records of people who are about to foreclose, and they knock on their door and they say, this is how you can keep your home. Um, and so I really like that kind of... Um, investment, right? And they also, are, it's, we notice this, people who are on our block who make sure that they say good morning, that they um, really maintain the, um, the spirit of the neighborhood. So that's really what they do. Um, and so I'm working with them and we're going to have three performances where it's really, I'm saying performance, but it's really around this idea of congregations. So um, the project is right now called the Congregation of the Decolonial. Um, and it's really about, um, these kind of gatherings that were happening like during the freedom rides that were happening, um, uh, really during times where we were organizing for movements. And one thing that I've noticed, uh, my husband and I, and my daughter went to the movement for black lives gathering. You were there in 2014, um, and in Cleveland, we, in Cleveland. And we noticed there was like not that many elders there. It was one elder, Miss Major, um, and So what it triggered for me was sort of a a, a intergenerational disconnect that we have uh, with movement work, and even as artists. Um, And so I really was interested in how do we create intimate spaces where we can actually hear from our elders, right, that we can get this information. So um, I'm hoping to have um, a few members, original members of SNCC um, come and do a sermon. So the idea of the congregation, there will be some kind of performance, some kind of ritual for each of the gatherings, but really like a deep listening moment um, from our elders about what we need to know now. Um, And it's really inspired by the meetings that I saw images of. I wasn't born, I didn't participate, but during the Freedom Wives where they would meet in people's living rooms to organize. And I think that all of our spaces now in this digital kind of moment are, um, as we know, surveilled policed, um, misused, like we look at Facebook. Um, and so how do we actually get back to talking to each other, right? Having a conversation like we're doing today where you can look in someone's eyes and see if they're okay. Like, how are you doing? Um, but also transmitting information that isn't for everybody because that's the other part, right? There's a need for, um, I always mispronounce this word, but subterfuge. There's a need for, like we talked about the idea of cigarettes emerging. There's a need for some things to be underground. Um, and so, and Simone Lee talks about this a lot when we worked on the, um, the clinic, that many of our uh, movements were actually underground. And now that a lot of things, and we do have aspects that are still underground and that's really important, but a lot of our um, space of engagement is surveilled um, and it's not personal. And so how do we have this this new kind of congregate old kind of congregation um, where we are together and we hear from each other.
0: And when you reference the clinic, you're talking about the Black Radical Brooklyn.
1: Yeah, so um, there was a project that I curated together with Creative Time in Weeksville called um, Black Radical Brooklyn. Uh, it was called Funk, God, Jazz and Medicine, Black Radical Brooklyn. And there were four projects um, located in the neighborhood surrounding Weeksville, Bedside, and Crown Heights, um, Bradford Young. Did a project with the AME Tabernacle Church. Um, Simone Lee did a project with Stuyvesant Mansion, um, which is Dr. Josephine English's former home. She was the first black woman OBGYN to have her own practice in New York. Um, and she delivered um, Betty Shabazz and Malcolm X's daughters. Um, and so Simone recreated a clinic, um, called the Free People's Medical Clinic, that the Black Panther Party used to run. Um, but because we're in a different time, it's actually not legal based on all the insurance things that have, um, happened for, um, doctors to actually practice outside of certain contexts. So most of the practitioners in our clinic were, um, uh, sort of independent, um, practitioners. So whether they were acupuncturists, my cousin Malik Bellamy was a massage therapist. Um, his, his mother was in the Black Panther party. Um, and... (laughs) Like, shout out to Malik. Um, uh, Amy Meredith Cox was the yoga teacher, and she taught a class called Black Folk Dance. Um, there was um, yoga only for South Asian folks. There was um, uh, OBGYN, uh, not OBGYN, there were um, midwives who did well woman care and doulas. So it was really a very um, you know, local practitioners, primarily black women and black men practitioners that were um, accessible so that when the clinic stopped existing that people could actually have their own connections and continue that kind of care. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was saying that when we looked at the history of um, the United Order of Tents, which is a secret society of black women nurses that happened and was um, developed during the Civil War, um, they're completely a secret society. And so we are thinking a lot about this idea of the underground and the knowledge that is transferred in um, private spaces.
0: Um, you're talking about the work that you're gonna be stepping into and I, I guess I just wonder what roots you and I'll tell you what sparked this is that when you brought up the idea when we were in Cleveland and we wrote the movement for black lives, um, I took so much uh, joy from watching the young people that were organizing that and how they were doing it. They were so deeply intersectional. They were able to put it into practice in a way that our generation failed to do. And they were so um, bold and uncompromising in their vision. I remember there was a moment where um, we had a a party and somebody um, was kicked out of a bathroom for using the wrong gendered bathroom. And um, as a result, the DJ turned the music off, the people spilled out into the street, the party was done, and there was an immediate protest outside. I was like, now that shit is dope. If that had been our generation, we would have been like, that's terrible. And then the music would have come back on. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They're doing it so much better than us. And so I, I, take, I take heart from looking at how they're doing it, and I also take heart from looking back that intergenerational conversation you were talking about, my uncle, um, John O'Neill was a field director with SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and he traveled the rural South doing plays about race, class, and justice with the Free Southern Theater, which he co-founded. The idea was that cultural work, which we both ground ourselves in, is really the most incredible tool to be able to affect positive and progressive social change, that people who might not come to a rally, or people who may not read a brochure, might come to this play, and then might have a community conversation afterwards. So I look at the models of those who came before us and I look at where we're going and I feel hopeful. How do you feel as you move forward in your work? What roots you? What gives you hope?
1: I feel hopeful and I also feel, especially as a mother of a child of this generation, they are so bold in a way that I was not. And I think for me, I think it's like what you described about the young leaders of the movement right now, um, it's about like getting out of their way, but also not getting so far out of their way that we don't actually share with them. And I feel like that's what happened in this generation. Like my aunt, we would always listen to her, tell her stories about the Black Panther Party. And that was so necessary for me, right? To be um, who I am today, to hear about that work. Um, And so I'm just really, want to make sure that I remain engaged um, so that I'm useful, right? Uh, Up into old age. Um, And so I think I'm hopeful, but I I think a lot about my own responsibility, my own role um, and how to just make sure that um, I don't, I mean, there's no way to get comfortable right now, right? But that I don't get so jaded that I'm disengaged because I feel like, you know, I do feel a difference in our generations where I feel like it's like you're saying, like our generation is like, that's fucked up. You know, we stay in that space as opposed to how do we actually shift something? And so I just want to always remain open and in a listening posture to know how I need to be engaged, right? And even with this work, I, you know, there's always an elder in the center. My teacher is in the work. And whoever her youngest student is, that just graduated from Oberlin. We've even had some students that were still at Oberlin who were in the work. So for me, I always think that that kind of conversation is really important. And that's where I live, is in the intergenerational, um, just because I felt like I gained so much from that and from really being um, at, you know, at the feet of elders.
0: As you heard over the course of our conversation, one of those elders that Rashida spent a lot of time sitting at the feet of was Kamal Brathwaite, the poet and writer and scholar from Barbados. She studied with him during her graduate work at NYU. Uh, He passed away earlier this month on February 4th at the age of 89. So in honor of him and his extraordinary mind, I'd like to Conclude with an excerpt from his poem, Kumina. On the first day of your death, it is quiet. It is dormant like a doormat. No one foot touch its welcome. Its dust on the floor do not disturb, nor are the sleeping spirits of this house. I sit here, in this chair, trying to unravel time so that it wouldn't happen, Twine. On the second day of your death, I break a small bread. I can still smell the sweet flower of your firstborn flesh. On the third day of your death, the water in my urine turned to blood. I cover the waterfront of the mirror with the blue cloth where your face stood. On the fourth day, you should be rising, knocking at the door of darkness, coming back to me. I do not hear your call. On the fifth day, after your death, a young white rooster, white, 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 feathery and shining, tail and tall, neighbor of sound from miles away in the next village, stands in the yard, and from his red crown crows and crows and will not go away. He struts round to the back o wall. His one eye clicking, clicking as he crows, comes to the glisten of my window and he crows loud like the overflowing voice of my Trelawney waterfall. On the sixth day after your death, there is the silence of flowers. Their petals say their shining needs, soft water needs, sweet Shower needs, sweet rain from heaven. I see them once again inside the chapel of my funeral. Thank you for your life, Kamal Brathwaite. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and read and review us on iTunes. It helps others discover this show. You can also follow us on the socials at Lineage Podcast and visit LineagePodcast.com for information about live events, to see portraits I've made of our guests, and to become a patron of this broadcast. For more from me, head on over to ShaniJamila.com. The inaugural season of Lineage is brought to you by the generosity of our campaign supporters, with special thanks to our Founders Circle. Amika Carter, Vera Grant, LaWanda Hodges, Ayana Minor, Wendell and Helen O'Neal, Romani Rogers, Jimmy and Lee Sutton, Chantal Vera, Stacey Burton-White, and the BK fam. Graphic design by Tony Moore Images. Original music composed by Cody Got Beats. <music>